Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a beautiful morning. We're grateful too for an opportunity to be with your with your people. And we pray, Lord, you'll help us today as we reflect on this important document, the Westminster Confession of Faith, a document that we use to help us order the church and our lives. And we know it's even had an influence beyond the boundaries of uh, what we normally think of as the Reformed uh, tradition. And we're grateful for that. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we are looking at chapter 29. We've gotten to chapter 29. And uh, it's uh, titled, Of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to read. It's uh, fairly lengthy. It's got, what, eight paragraphs. I'm going to read a number of them, and then we'll begin with the first. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death and sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him and to be bound and pledge of their communion with him to be a bond, I should say, to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Number two, in this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins uh, of the quick or uh, dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all uh, and a spiritual oblation or oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Number three, the Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine and thereby to set them apart from a common to an holy use and to take the bread, uh, break the bread and take the cup and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants uh, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. So why don't we stop there because the next gets into elaborating on what they're talking about number three, but it'd be surprising if we get to number four. (laughs) There's a lot here. So now let me just take a quick survey. Uh, For those who are here, um, in terms of your own Christian background and church life experience, uh, was it very, you know, sort of common at your last church, you know, the church maybe you were converted in, uh, to observe the Lord's Supper, or was it something that only happened every once in a while? Weekly. It was weekly, 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 okay. Monthly. Monthly. It was never. 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 <laughs> okay, we've got never. Uh, other options? Quarterly. Quarterly, okay, quarterly. Every six months. Yeah, yeah. Biannually, yeah. 
So this is an interesting thing to, to consider, you know. Um, so I'm not surprised that a number of, you know, churches or a number of folks here who come, have had church experiences where it's, you know, monthly or even less frequent. Do you remember what the thinking was or why it was done that way or not observed very often? Was there ever an ex explanation or was it just kind of assumed this is the right way to do it? It was just assumed. It was just assumed? Yeah. Was not practical with a lot of people. Yeah, okay, so yeah, yeah. the, 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 the sort of the labor of trying to get it set up and uh, pre sort of precludes the observance, okay. Other thoughts? Yeah. Our church did it once a month to keep it kind of special. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, it's special. It's it's more special. Unlike the sermon, which is just like ah, whatever. We got that every week. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Or singing or prayer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we don't want to do it too much because it would like uh, it's like uh, sacrament inflation. You know, if it goes down in value the more you do it. Yeah, that kind of thing. But that's a very common one. I've heard that one before, Chris. Yeah. Other thoughts. I think sometimes we, we are shy about it in evangelical churches because we don't want to look like Catholics because they do it every, every time they get together. You know, that's kind of like the main thing. And so we don't want to be confused with those folks and if we do it too often. This is not an spoken uh, you know, sort of thing, but I think an assumed thing. We don't want to look too much like those guys. So we're not going to do it. Uh, in fact, we may not even do it, you know, until you know once a year you know in some in some places that's the way it was uh, say uh, you ever see uh, communion tokens have you ever seen uh, uh, like a photograph or actually a physical communion token so in um, some parts of the reform world Scotland for example uh, the elders would come and examine you and you had to pass examination before you could get a token that would uh, admit you to the Lord's Supper so in those situations, you're talking about even more laborious, Brittany. <laughs> you know, we have to get out there into everybody's homes and kind of go through all the things we believe and make sure they don't misunderstand what we're up to and all that kind of stuff. And you get a token and then you come and you present your token, and then you can receive the Lord's Supper. Now, does that sound kind of weird? It is a little bit weird, but it was a pretty common way of doing things a couple hundred years ago. Even in the United States, you know, there are churches that were, uh, you know, it tended to do that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Wasn't there a big controversy at um, Edward's time with his father? There was a split on who could take communion. Yeah. And he, I guess uh, Stoddard, was that his name? Yeah. 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 So it was one of those weird situations. Uh, I think it was his father-in-law, if I remember correctly. So he was the assistant pastor to his father-in-law, and they had a disagreement about this. And one of the things, you know, uh, that was problematic is if people are under discipline um, or, or at least people have questions about, uh, they should be examined, you know, that sort of thing. And because of the stat, status of the church in the community, all the bit, you know, the most important civic leaders, were, it's in Northampton. If you want to go there, it's a really creepy town now. It's, uh, it's kind of like, like right out of a I don't know, H.P. Lovecraft story. You go there and there's just all these witches' co covens and all these kinds of things right down the, the, the street from uh, the old church where, you know, Edwards and, and Stoddard served. And um, so, but uh, yeah, there was a, 
there was a controversy surrounding this because Edwards uh, thought that there was too much laxity. If we were just being too um, permissive about this and there ought to be more work, uh, disciplinary work, which, uh, I, you know, the reason that it was an awkward thing is because some of the civic leaders um, and their kids would have been, ex you know, barred from the table. Other thoughts or things you've heard about why people do it and why they don't? Now, here's, a, here's something that may, you might not be aware of. Uh, Calvin in his own church in Geneva couldn't administer uh, because his elders uh, were against it. They, they wanted to limit, they didn't want to do it every week, but he wanted to do it every week and make a case for that, which is an important thing to keep in mind because that helps you see that the pastor doesn't always get his way. <laughs> you know, so there are situations where, you know, here's a fun thing. You know, in some churches in uh, the old world, uh, the elders have to unlock the pulpit to let the pastor in. Have you ever seen that? It's like a fairly, like, uh, kind of uh, elaborate process. You know, there'll be like, a, like one of the elders pulls out this enormous key, you know, for everybody to see, you know. And then they're actually sitting up behind like judges, you know, uh, at, a, at a bench. And then the pastor gets up to preach in front of them. So if you want to, we're going to build a new building, you know. <laughs> Do you want that? You know, you know, you actually lock the pulpit and have to let the pastor in. That kind. Of. Now, here's a fun, another fun one. Uh, Cotman Square in Boston. So this is one of the second church of Dorchester. Uh, enormous buildings could seat maybe. You know, this is before sound systems, but it would seat like 1,200 people. I preached in there, and uh, but acoustics are just marvelous. Everything's designed to, you know, make it possible to speak in a normal sort of register and be heard by everybody. So, uh, but uh, the Unitarians took over. And uh, so all of his elders were Unitarians and they barred him from the pulpit and actually hired some like thugs to surround the pulpit to prevent him from getting to it. So there's this famous event where he gets on the front pews and preaches to the congregation the defiance of the elders and, uh, and the thugs. There are lots of really fascinating, this is not directly related to the Lord's Supper, but it, it's kind of the relationship between, you know, say, um, the pastor and his congregation and what's being done with regard to sacraments and preaching. It's very important that, um, you know, the pastor and the elders are on the same page with stuff. Now, one of the things you might wonder is, is Pastor Wiley on the same page with the, his elders? And the answer is yes, we've got a very good working relationship and we're on the same page. But sometimes you're not. Sometimes if you're you know, looking at a situation from a distance, you might say, what's going on over there? Well, there might be some disagreement between you know, the teaching elder and the ruling elders of the church. Now, when it comes to the, administer, you know, the administration of the Lord's Supper, I'm very pleased that we do it every week. It's, it's uh, I think, a really good thing that uh, we have as part of our normal practice. So, um, Anyway, so those are some preliminary thoughts. Anything else come to mind before we dive into this first paragraph? Yeah, John. I've never understood the, it's more special if we do it once a month as opposed to weekly. There is something about it being weekly um, that is near to me, near and dear to me. Um, and part of that is, I, I, you're forced to be confronted with, you know, this is what, this 
with, with it being the sacrament and, and the requirements to, you know, to, to, to examine yourself and, and as you point out, you know, being a part of the body, I have to do that with, you know, with my own family. Do I need to repent of something to my family? Yeah. That, that sort of thing, um, as opposed to I've been in congregations, I have been in congregations where it's weekly, quarterly, or less, um, and, and almost be surprised by it, like, oh, I didn't realize we were doing, you know, the Lord's Supper this week. Um, and, and, and an element of, of have I, you know. So I've got a theory, uh, and it's, it's just a theory. It's not as though I can prove, you know, what I'm about to say, but I suspect it's true. I believe that the altar call supplanted the Lord's Supper in many churches. So if you're familiar with the altar call, I, I, people know what I'm talking about when I talk about altar calls. Do you remember who was the guy who invented the altar call? It's actually kind of a new kind of a thing. Finney. <laughs> called the anxious bench, you know, so you'd have, this is kind of an yeah. <laughs> so you'd have a particular part of the church where all the notorious sinners were supposed to sit, the anxious bench. And then, you know, this is where you would direct your, your, your thunder <laughs> at those guys, calling them to repent. And then, you know, you'd have the altar call, which is the invitation to come forward to present yourself at the altar. So the altar, what was the altar rail for originally? Communion. That's where you went to kneel and receive communion in many churches. And instead of that, the appeal was to come and present yourself and receive Christ. And so that's the big sort of climax to many churches. Uh, that's why, you know, most Southern Baptists can, you know, sing uh, just as I am, you know, from memory, because they've heard it like a million times. You know, you, you hear, and let's sing it once again, because there's somebody in the congregation the pastor really thinks should be coming and hasn't come yet. <laughs> and then you sing, I'm having a little fun. But uh, that's often, too, um, in those traditions, and I was part of a tradition like that. I've conducted, not, you know, hundreds, of, not thousands of altar calls. Um, what, what you have, too, is kind of a temptation to measure yourself by the response. So... You know, I've, I've heard guys brag about, you know, the results of their preaching. The altar was lined, you know, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, but I do think that that in some churches, particularly, you know, the Southern Baptist tradition, many of the revivalist churches like the holiness churches or the Pentecostal churches, um, that's, I, I think, what happened. Yeah. So in those churches that kind of said it this way, right, it had more of a symbolic view of stuff. I guess my question is more like, what what is their view? Because they still would say baptism and Lord's Supper are sacraments, but they do seem much more like, just not, I think not, not as important, but you know, so we only do the Lord's Supper once a month, or we only do it once a year, or baptism, you know, we, we do that once a year, and everyone has to do it like, you know, you want, you want to get baptized, but you got to wait until you do that, you know, so what is that, what, yeah, just what's the difference? Well, yeah, I think that there's been a lot of uh, things that contributed to that. Uh, some of them have to do with some of the controversies that occurred during the Reformation with regard to Zwingli and Luther and so forth, and their understanding of the sacraments. So one of the things to keep in mind with the sacraments is sometimes they were used uh, as a way to sort of uh, control uh, things. So not even just things in church, but things, say, in the political realm and stuff like that. So uh, because in some of the, you know, uh, 
medieval world, there was such a strong connection between the sacrament and salvation. They were, uh, there was a kind of a sacerdotal sort of way of thinking that if you, if you don't have access to the sacraments, you, your soul is in jeopardy. And being um, excommunicated uh, would be something that, say, you know, bishops could use to make sure that, you know, the mayor or the emperor or whoever or a prince was in line on stuff. And I think that there was a, that was part of the story. The other part had to do with some developments uh, in philosophy, uh, particularly in the 14th century. And I could give you an entire les you know, lesson on that, but no, I'm not going to. <laughs> but there was, a, there was a big controversy called the nominalist realist controversy. And nominalism is the outlook that prevails not just in those churches, but in the modern world, generally speaking. Yeah. I was going to say, as far as how many times we do it, how often, it's not actually as specific a polemic as these divines were. They were pretty careful not to create kind of controversy at the same time. Yeah. Like one of the words that's used in the second one is commemoration. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. It's not Calvinistic necessarily. So, but as far as the time, and they're also trying not to add any kind of superstition to this period that we call communion or Lord's Supper. And Calvin, if they're following Calvin, the reason why Calvin was insistent upon it weekly, because Calvin's view of this sacrament particularly was that it was a visible a visible proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So like you were intimating earlier, well, I'm not going to just stop preaching. And so this is something that ought to be done, not because it's necessarily some kind of spirit, although there is spiritual significance, um, that we ought to do it as often as we come together. Yeah, I think that's not really mentioned here. Yeah, well, at least not yet. I, I, I think that, you know, your point uh, about this being an, a, an effort to pull together di different um, sort of groups in, you know, the United Kingdom or, the, or England is an important one because, you know, you had Congregationalists, you had Presbyterians, you had Anglicans who disagreed on, uh, you know, the biblical basis for church government. And so they were, they were looking for common ground a lot of the time as they were debating these issues. So that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, Becky. When it's quarterly or less often, if you're sick or whatever, it really boosts out. Yeah, that's right. Particularly with that statement about not taking it to people who are not in the congregation, which is something I want to get at. Because within uh, the Roman practice, you'll have a priest take a sort of private communion to somebody who's housebound because of illness or something like that. And this is something that, uh, it, I, and I agree with this uh, conviction, uh, seems to undermine the visible unity of the church as a gathered people. You know, we, we, so one of the things that we're trying to say when we're uh, receiving the Lord's Supper is that um, we are Christ's body. So, and I try to make that point as often as I can, uh, you know, the sacrament itself is Christ's body and blood, but it is also the, the case that the church is Christ's body. And when we, uh, you know, take the elements to somebody who's housebound, that it can be lost. 
it's an unintended. Um, the idea would be, you know, a person could have um, a relationship with God through Christ without being part of the body. That's, that's the mis sort of thing we don't want people to, to think. Except then they feel more part of the body. Maybe. Well, they can if they're very reflective. <laughs> but the, 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 the importance of, the, of any kind of sign is uh, the range of things that you can infer from it and also the things that maybe you don't want to infer. So uh, because we don't maintain that um, this is something that, is, in other words, our understanding isn't sacerdotal. It's not like this is, a th so look, you know, the classic example, and I've used this many times, is, you know, the thief on the cross. You know, he is uh, going to be with the Lord in paradise, but he hasn't had a chance to receive the Lord's Supper, <laughs> right? You know, or uh, baptism. So that helps us to see that there's an important distinction to make. This isn't incidental, it's, it's a means of grace, it's very important and we should, we should observe it. But there are going to be, um, and I think what's being, what's, it's not just implied but actually directly taught in Roman Catholic circles is that you must receive the, 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 the Mass, must receive the sacrament to be saved. Other thoughts before we dive into those particulars here? Okay, so some of this should sound very familiar because some of this is lifted directly from the passage I, I read every week, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Our Lord Jesus, in the night when, wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood. So the words of institution are Christ's words. This is my body. And so what you know, we have whenever we administer uh, the suppers, uh, supper is to repeat those words of institution. This is what Christ said. Um, to be observed in the church until the end of the world. And again, that's something that's stated right there in that passage. For a perpe uh, the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death. So, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, when we think about the various theological understandings of what happens in the Lord's Supper. There's what we refer to as the Zwinglian view. And the Zwinglian view is the idea that it's strictly a memorial. It's something to remember, a means of, rem of remembering. Uh, you know, in the Reformed tradition, uh, we agree, but we say there's more going on than that. So we're not denying that. It's stated right here. It is something that we do to remember. But, we're, but there's more, to, more going on in that. So, uh, and then the reason we, uh, you know, confess that is because Christ said that exactly that. You know, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, now the next uh, phrase uh, gets to the more. Uh, the sealing uh, all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment, and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So each clause here is, a, you know, could be a, 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 a Sunday morning lesson, <laughs> as there's a lot packed into each of those, each of them. But I think 
The first one, perpetual remembrance, is the easy one. That's the one we say, oh, okay, yeah, this is kind of a reminder, right? It's a reminder that uh, this is what happened and it was, you know, the, the circumstances and the purpose of the sacrifice, we're remembering that. That, by the way, is not an, uh, a, a light matter. That's a very important thing. Uh, throughout, say, you know, the scriptures, we're told, you know, often remember, 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 and there are different things that are intended to help us remember. So let's just think about Passover. Um, like when you think about the Passover meal, everybody's supposed to dress up. Did you, did you, ever, did you know that? Everybody's supposed to dress up. What are they supposed to dress up like? Right. So today you'd be, you know, your backpack, maybe your hiking boots. <laughs> but at that time, you know, you're supposed to have your staff. You're supposed to be looking like you're ready to go. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're being delivered. We can't wait around. We got to go. So, and then the, the meal begins with the oldest son asking the question, right? The question, why are we doing this? And then it's time for the, the father. Oh, my son, this is why. And then he tells the story, you know, our, you know, we were delivered from the land of bon, you know, Egypt. But, you know, in this, have you ever thought about why are you dressing up, all, all this kind of thing? What's, what's the deal with that? Any thoughts? It's kind of LARPing, live action role play. You know, you're, you're like, you remember uh, there was a, like a program that used to like, I think be on like Sundays, and you were there. And you know you'd have like I think it was Walter Cronkite, you know if his, if I remember the remember and you were there and there'd be some kind of you know uh, enactment reenactment of some historic event, you know and you, and you'd see you know the debates in Congress about you know ratifying the Constitution or you know you know just think of whatever historic event you know and and you were there and but in <laughs> thought, uh, the thinking of, of the Israelites, they were. Why were they there? Remember? We're told why they were there. Because they were in the loins. They were there, you could say, potentially. They are the descendants of the people who were delivered. They were there. Um, and, you know, we see references to that kind of thing with Abraham and, and so forth. So there's a, there's a kind of mystical character to this whole thing. So when we observe this, the Lord's Supper each week, it's as though we're there. You know, you were there. You, we were there. You remember that, that hymn, Were You There When They Crucify My Lord? You know, that spiritual. You know, and they, they go, you know, each verse goes through the various things that occurred, right? And you're meant to kind of like relive it. That's the thing. You're, you're meant to relive it. Uh, you can say, well, that's a marvelous sort of mental exercise. Yeah, our imaginations have got great power. But there's more to it than that. It's, that's the, the idea is there's more to it than just something going on in your head. Any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah, Mark. Just um, one of our... Well, an individual has, um, at, at a certain time in our church history, would, we would stand in a circle oh, yeah. to take communion. And um, an elderly pastor 
did not like that at all <laughs> because it, it didn't have the idea of reclining a table yeah meaning yeah. you were there and that there was it was not like passover now it was yeah it was accomplished and we're reclining a table so yeah he, he's very happy to know that we sit <laughs> we recline in our cushy chairs yeah that's right yeah we're seated with him in heavenly places so i i, I made a comment online along this line uh this week and i said that our our services on sunday should uh uh remind us of being in the heavenly court uh, because we are seated with him in heavenly places right uh, ephesians 2 6. so uh, we can say oh that's a, just a fancy way of saying you know it's kind of poetical it doesn't really mean anything well does is that is it really just that I mean that's a very modern understanding of poetry by the way <laughs> it's not the way people in the past thought about poetry um, so you know we can be anachronistic kind of thinking that we get it when we don't actually get it but seated with him in heavenly places is like you are now like you can say well someday someday I'll be there but no you know Paul is saying in the present tense you are now seated with him in heavenly places so there's a spiritual reality that we already enjoy. And this is what Calvin reflected on a lot with regard particularly to the Lord's Supper, uh, that he is um, there with us right now, you know. Uh, anyway, so now this next statement, sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers. So we've talked a little bit about seals before, right? Um, you remember the signet ring, you know, the ring that you know, you know, a, a father uh, would have, who's the head of the house, or a patrician in Rome, or you know, a son. Remember uh, when the prodigal returns, what does he get? A robe and a ring. Robe and a ring. Robe and a ring. So the robe uh, is intended to, to sort of be the sign of his status in the household. He's been reinstated as a son. And the signet ring is his authority. You know, it's intended to say something about, I have authority in this household. I can seal documents and that kind of stuff. So this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, have you noticed that particularly with like uh, Etsy people, that like sealing letters is back all the people who are into Etsy know exactly what I'm talking about. The wax, you know, the seals. You can get these fancy stamps, you know, with your family name on it, and or maybe even a picture of yourself. You know, I've seen that. You know, would I want my face on my seal? I don't think so. <laughs> you know, but uh, but the idea is that you know the seal is intended to say something about about you know our inclusion in. Christ, our belonging to Christ and belonging to the church. So this is kind of an ongoing kind of, you know, sort of a, a statement that's made every time we gather, I belong to him, I belong to him, you know, he's got his seal on me. It's yeah, it's official, it's official. Yeah. Um, spiritual nourishment. Do you, uh, how do I put this? Because the word experience has been so, you know, sort of altered in the way we use it. 
Maybe it's just, do, do, does there something about receiving the Lord's Supper kind of nourish you spiritually that you can say, yeah, I mean, I really look forward to that. There's something about that that is special and, I, and I'm nourished by it. It reminds me of Jesus dying on the cross. Yeah, that's, you know, the first statement there uh, to commemorate that. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on it, particularly when I was a young believer. Um, even though I was in a, you know, a revivalist tradition, we would still have the Lord's Supper, you know, like once a month or once a quarter or whatever. But it really did seem pretty special to me. Uh, I really did have a sense of spiritual encouragement and enrichment through it. Um, any thoughts on that? So sometimes I'll say, you know, what, we need strength for the journey, and what do you need to make a journey? You need food, <laughs> right? You know, and you know, Jesus refers to himself as manna from heaven, the bread of life, right? Uh, making that connection in John's gospel in particular. Yeah, Jonathan. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I appreciate <coughs> One of the ways that we do communion here is that the elders walk through the rows and we don't just like pass the plate. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a practicality sort of thing in other churches where you just, there's not enough room, right? Um, once again, if we build our own building, yeah. give enough room for it. Um, because, and, and maybe maybe this is wrong for me to, to, to bring this into it, um, but I, I like the representation. That, the elders, right? You have the spiritual care for for us as a flock. Um, it's not just you preaching, and I know the hard work that it goes in, the dedication that the, that the session has, and so to see that yeah. um, each week as well, there's there's a representation of your spiritual care um, for us and labor in that. Yeah, there are so many things going on with that, and I agree with you. I I think that uh, for one thing. Um, you know, one of the reasons we do it is so that children who are not, uh, you know, uh, had the opportunity to be examined yet by the session, have been admitted to the table, can be blessed. That's an important thing. Uh, kind of also tacit is that we can skip you. In, <laughs> in other words, if you're under discipline, whoop, you know. Now, that's obviously an awkward thing, but you know it would be even more awkward? You to come all the way up to the front and them to say no. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, that was one of the ways to prevent that, right? But uh, so when there are you know people who are under discipline and are chafing under it, and you know the church has to resort to because that's that's pretty much our hammer. That's what you know we've got. Um, you know how that gets done is important to think about. Yep, Mark. Then Brittany. Just in terms of spiritual nourishment, I always, often, not always, but often think of Christ's words um, remembering Deuteronomy that a man does not live by bread alone, yeah. by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that we talk often, you talk often, about um, reality, spiritual reality is the harder reality. Yeah. This is the softer one. And we really like our food. We understand food and nourishment yeah. here, but it's a it's a tactile reminder of 
I'm nothing really. Yeah. And, and, I, and it's easy for us as we grow older to accept that if we didn't have the gospel, we didn't have a knowledge of God, if we were out hope in the world, yeah. who we are and what our culture is, yeah. it, it, it's unthinkable you know, what it would be. That what the Word of God has done and how it's nourished yeah. is um, right. one of the ways I apply it. Oh, I think that's right. So getting back to Victor's point about the visible Word, you know, this is something that is communicating to us. Um, and when we think about the word became flesh, I think there's a really strong connection there. You know, this is my body, the word becomes flesh. So, yeah. Brittany? I, I think it's also more like family bonding. We're doing something positive together and yeah. we're, we're connected because of that. And it actually encourages us to say like, hey, we're part of the same family. We're doing something good together that God wants us to do. So right. it, yeah. it encourages us that way. Yeah, and of course that's the thing that Paul was um, disciplining the Corinthian church about is you guys don't behave that way. You know, everybody's kind of looking out for themselves and some people are not even getting anything and you know, that kind of thing. These are good thoughts, good comments. Okay. Um, so nourishment and growth in him. So this is one of the means by which that happens. Their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him. That's an interesting one. Have you, have you thought of, you know, when you've received the Lord's Supper, about your duties, about your responsibilities. Is that, is that occur to you? Or is that something maybe it just like, wow, I hadn't thought about that before. So when we think about our, our duties, the word duty, of course, is a, is a word that's gotten a lot of bad press because we have this sense that if you have to make yourselves do something, then it isn't authentic. You know, we want to be authentic. We want to just kind of be spontaneous and never have to do something that we maybe have to force ourselves to do. So now obviously it's great when things come very quickly or, or you know, easily maybe a way to think about it is you have, you've heard the term second nature. You know, it's, it's second nature to me, second nature. What, what second nature is referring to is that, is that through uh, discipline, through, uh, you know, just being so well acquainted with something, that you don't even have to think about it because it just comes readily. So like when you're driving a car, you know, if you've driven for years, you, you sometimes arrive at some place and say, I don't remember anything that just happened the last 20 minutes. You know, it's, just, it's like second nature to you, you know, it's, it's just thoughtless. So that's actually a good thing. It's not, not a bad thing. But sometimes when you're just kind of getting going on, you know, changing your ways, there's a lot of thought, a lot of effort, a lot of saying, I should do this. You know, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's, that can be a really good thing. So like if, if somebody were, you know, drowning and somebody was just standing on the side watching them go down, you know, and, you know, the person were asked, you know, well, why didn't you do anything? I like just, well, I didn't feel it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, it just didn't feel authentic to help them out. Uh, but you had a duty. Hey. Don't lay that on me, you know, duty talk. So like in, in Alaska, did you know it's illegal not to stop for somebody in the wintertime when they're on the road? Because the conditions are so, uh, you know, harsh. People die of exposure. So you, you have a duty to stop 
It's not, you know, even if the guy looks scary, <laughs> you have a duty to stop. So I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So what are some things that maybe occur to you as uh, duties that, that maybe come to mind with the Lord's Supper? Let me just throw one out. Duties to your brothers and sisters. You know? Yeah. Yes, you can. In full repentance. We can't live as a body if we're not humble and repenting of the sins we've committed against the Lord and each other. Yeah, so we have a duty to repent, to say, okay, that was not the way, the way I should have done things, you know, the other day. I need to get that squared away. Any other thoughts? Um, you know, I think that every time I receive the Lord's Supper, I'm like reminded of just how slothful I am. You know, man, I should be doing this and I'm not doing it, uh, that kind of thing. Um, it brings me up short, makes me think more about, I, you know, I think, you know, a lot of that, you know, so for example, in, in uh, my life, there are some things that really are second nature. I have no sort of like uh, hesitation picking up the Bible and studying. That's not something that is like, even feels like duty to me. That feels like, wow, I get to sit and read the Bible. This is great. But there are other things that do feel like, man, I got to make myself do that. That's not like the thing that comes naturally to me. Like with my wife, it's the reverse. <laughs> now she, she does a very good job, I want you to know, reading her Bible and listening to the Bible and so forth. But that's, that's more like I got to make myself do it for her. Whereas other things just come really quickly to her, like reaching out to people in need or praying and that kind of thing. So. Other thoughts? Yeah, Mark. I think in light of uh, 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> the great duty that, particularly as an elder, as I stand before the congregation, and I, I always partake looking at the congregation. Go ahead and look at me and you'll see that. I partake <laughs> in the bread. I can't do it while I'm drinking the wine because my head goes back. Right, right. But it's to look at the congregation because I think the whole point of 1 Corinthians 11 is that the leaders of that church were not doing their duty in recognizing the body of Christ in their midst. Yeah. That all of those that they thought were beneath them socially yeah. instead were equal, yeah. absolutely equal to them, and they needed to serve them. And I think for, for as an elder, yeah. That has become so. So for a congregant, saying what Yasika said is is beautiful in terms yeah. of how am I, how am I living with this family of believers right. who Christ has given His life for, who He has elected for me to to live with and to love one another. Yeah, yeah. In some in some traditions, they'll really stress that too. They'll say. You know, as you're about to receive the supper, do you have anything against anyone in the congregation? You know, uh, you need to make that right. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's great. I think it's great. Yeah, Jonathan. Duties I have to catechize my children, whether they're partaking or not. Um, both of them. You know, the ones who are not, 
to, to raise them up and teach them what this is about and the rest of the, and then the ones who are, of, okay, they've, they've passed examination, um, doesn't stop there. You know, don't, yeah. don't leave them, don't, don't think that, that they've made it now, right? Like right. It's, they, they need to continue to be catechized to talk. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's not like you've graduated and never had to think about it again. Um, okay, got that down, <laughs> right? Any other thoughts? Okay, let's see if we can get through this, this paragraph at least. Um, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him. Okay, a bond. There's a, there's a word that we don't like to hear much. Um, you know, we talk about bondage. And that's certainly something that's bad in certain circumstances. But is it always bad? Like the bond of love. You know, we are one in the bond of love. I don't know if you remember that hymn, or one in the bond of love. So, you know, uh, we talk about marital bond, right? There are obligations that a husband has to his wife and a wife has to her husband. There's a bond there. And it's not just, I'm not feeling it today, you know, kind of thing. It's, we don't let it devolve to that. We shouldn't anyway. And maybe that's one of the reasons we have problems in our society is that we don't have a sense of what a bond can mean in a good way. Um, but, you know, you think about your own moods. You know, you have good days, bad days. You know, you can't sort of regulate your relationships with other people based solely on your moods. Moods are important. I'm not trying to be dismissive, but if that's all you got, you, you've got a very unstable basis for your relationship. You need something stronger. So a bond to uh, commune with him and with each other. So we have a bond uh, to uh, God through Christ, and we have a bond to each other because there are other people bound to him besides us. Um, you know, I think, you know, sometimes we might feel like, who let you in? Well, <laughs> not you. <laughs> you know, Christ did, right? So it's because that person has a bond to Christ that we are bound to that person, which is a marvelous thing. And sometimes I think that gets a little lost in our world today when maybe it was maybe clearer at another time. So if you go to, to older towns, say in the East Coast, um, that were initially laid out before the automobile, what is the first thing you, you, you think? There's no parking here, <laughs> beside that. <laughs> it's that everything's in walking distance. And there would be churches within everyone's walking distance, and those were the choices, right? And sometimes there was just one, you know, on the town green. That's the only one. That was church. So what that meant was is that you were communing with everybody. It wasn't just you know, people who were in my political party, it wasn't people just in my social, you know, socioeconomic group. It was everybody. And sometimes you were actually much closer in terms of living arrangements. So like I remember in my hometown of Meadville, Pennsylvania, uh, the distance between, say, the upper classes where the doctors and the lawyers lived and the working classes was like two blocks. That close. So these are people who are walking by each other's houses all the time, greeting each other in the stores, 
you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it was a lot harder to be exclusive in the old days, you know. But you know, now because we have freedom of movement, I mean, there's no going back. I'm not like trying to get you to stop driving your car or make you move to walking distance to the church or whatever. It, it is what it is. We have to work with what we've got. But um, it, it makes it, I think, a little more challenging to be with people that are maybe not the people you would be with if you weren't in the same. So I think one of the, one of the benefits of the Reformed tradition is that is because we are distinct enough that uh, a whole bunch of people who wouldn't find themselves in the same room with each other end up in the same room because they have these doctrine, doctrinal convictions in common. Um, I think that you know when the when the say the worship is built around say tastes or um, you know sort of a niche interest that becomes less the case. So I don't know if you've seen some of these churches where they'll have 13 different services. Contemporary music service, traditional service, kids service, teen service. I mean, literally, they're breaking it up that far in some of these places. And everything is like catered to that group. The, you know, the, the contemporary service, what is it actually? It's actually old time music. It's oldie, oldies radio It's what it is. It's boomerism. It's, it's not contemporary at all. <laughs> it's stuff that was like, feels like it's from the 70s or the 80s, you know? And like real contemporary music, they would hate, <laughs> you know? But I, you get my drift. You know? So what are the things that hold us together or bring us in, into contact with people we wouldn't, well, you, you're not saying, unless you're like, in the coffee hour and you're passing each other on your, on your way to your own particular favorite service. I'm not, I'm not even exaggerating. I mean, I've, I'm giving you a picture of what most of the Bible Belt is like. The connection between the words bond, nourishment, and seal, or seal, nourishment, bond, is all about the unity we have with Christ. And so I remember this movie, and I didn't really like it. And even the end was a little bit dubious. In terms of endearment, where they're all, all these people are arguing, bickering, killing, adulterating, we're in this congregation. It's like a heavenly congregation. They're all just sitting there going, where they're enjoying each other. And, and I think that, of course, of the work of Christ, the bond is Jesus Christ, not this weird universalistic mentality yeah. we're going to have it. But and that's what brings us together. Our bond is in Jesus Christ, whether you're Baptistic or Presbyterian or anything of the other isms. It, it, the unity is in Jesus Christ, and that's what the meal's about. That's my opinion. That's what it's about. Yeah, and this presents us with an interesting uh, and ongoing challenge because, on the one hand, we want to affirm the unity of the body of Christ, uh, you know, sort of, uh, sort of transcending these these things. But at the same time, it's not as though the doctrines are incidental or unimportant. Or so you have to find a way to um, interact with believers from other traditions who uh, some pretty significant disagreements with you. But you don't like paper over them or pretend they don't exist. You know, so that's the challenge. Other thoughts? Well, let's finish with that last uh, phrase there, members of his mystical body. 
So I've talked a little bit about this before, um, but the, the word mystery uh, is a word that we in a contemporary uh, society have lost sort of its original sense. Um, so when you hear the word mystery, and I, I've mentioned this many times, but when you hear the myst word mystery today, you think about Agatha Christie or maybe Sherlock Holmes or something like that. A mystery is just something that's a puzzle or a problem and you're trying to figure out uh, you know, the answer to the problem or a solution. But that's not the way uh, mystery was understood in the first century. Um, the word mysterion, the Greek word, is where we obviously we get the word mystery. But the contemporary understanding is the modernization of the older idea. So the older idea is that a mystery is, is a hidden thing. Uh, it's not, and in fact, it's, as you know, Mark brought it, it's, it's actually very often more real than the surface. So, you know, like you and I are mysteries. There's more to all of us than meets the eye, right? Um, someday, you know, barring the return of Christ, we're going to be in a coffin lying there. And we're going to say, there's, you know, whoever. There's Chris. And say, well, really? All of them? <laughs> no, the thing that made him the person that we had friendship with and the person that we'd uh, hang out with is gone. The, the, that's the, that's the, the most important part. <laughs> and all we're left with is the body. Now, it's not like the body is worthless or incidental. It will be raised. We're not Gnostics. But at the same time, we're not materialists. We don't think that the body is all there is. Um, so there's... So you're a mystery. There's something about you that's mysterious. Kind of a cool thought, right? <laughs> and what we're saying is that that's true for all kinds of stuff. And it's true for the body of Christ. So, you know, when you think about the visible church, uh, you can think of it like the visible body. You know, there's something, you know, that we can identify and say, there it is, the visible church. It meets at such and such a location in that building, okay? But... The, the mystical church is the hidden thing that, that's only known to God, you know, and because it's known to God, it's the real thing. It doesn't mean that the physical thing is incidental or unimportant, uh, but that's the mystery. So there's a, mis there's a mystery to the church. There's a reality that it's, it's hidden from view, but we as Christians believe it. Now, a person who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't believe in mysteries in this sense would just say, oh, there's no mystery. That's just a bunch of people over there. There's nothing to it. And then you guys all happen to believe in this crazy idea that Jesus is the Son of God. That's them. But they don't see the mystery. They don't have, it, they don't have any apprehension of it or appreciation for it or, or, or belief uh, in it. Any thoughts about that? Why don't people break up into permanent groups? Either believers or non-believers. Well, uh, the Lord encourages us to reach out and evangelize. And there's, um, you know, just a practical matter of, uh, you know, we have to live in this world and make a living. And often we do that with people who don't agree with us about uh, the Lord. So, you know, we, we, we come apart, we gather with our fellow believers on a regular basis, and we try to help each other and support each other. But we don't try to um, just, you know, move away and only have our little enclave. I was, I was on a bus, and it was evening, I 
I was going home, um, it, it was the winter, and this girl just started crying, and she said, I married a guy I don't know well. How stupid am I? And I said, do you know his, does he go to church regularly? Does he believe in God? Does he believe in you? Do you believe in him? And she said, I don't know. And I said, then why did you get married? Well, and that's what she was wondering too. <laughs> so, you know, that's what we need to pray for. Yeah, Victor. Back to the, my three words that I used earlier is in the middle of that is nourishment. And the mystery of that is when I eat pizza, I'm not sure how that's nourishing me. <laughs> but it is nourishing me. Well, it, it is. It's pizza. Yeah. And, and when you're eating food, you're not really going, I'm really, really glad this is nourishing me. I can tell you exactly how it's nourishing me. And it's the same mystery is involved, I think, in com communing with Christ. And, and the benefit of the word as it man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Also, Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, but a whole part of me. Here's this mystery. We don't know how that's nourishing, but it is. And I can almost guarantee you, and I can guarantee you that Paul says, as when you come together, that's that's how I put that's how I get every week. If we come together, then do this. You know? And I could be debated. But I'm just saying that utilizing these means of grace, the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments is nourishment to your spiritual welfare for the rest of your life every day. And you may not recognize it when you go home and watch football game, but you are being nourished. Well, I think another dimension to this uh, has to do with um, the fact that we do it together. We know we live in a world of convenience food now where everybody can kind of have their own private food. Uh, you know, you see, even see it in some houses where you know, families aren't even eating together. Everybody has their, like, their, their, I don't know, hot pocket or something, you know, and they're just kind of eating on the run all the time, and they never meet and sit down and, and eat together. There's something about eating with, with other people um, that it's more than uh, the food. It's about the connection. Yeah, Passover was a meal. Yeah, Passover was a meal, yeah. And there are certain kinds of food that are more communal in nature, like pizza. Pizza is a very communal in nature food. Well, bell pepper and asparagus and broccoli and pizza, it's very nutritious. <laughs> but, Tomato sauce. But I think that there are certain um, kinds of uh, practices like uh, family style. Uh, you know, it used to be a thing where, you know, you'd have like family style restaurants. And the idea would be that you would just kind of sit at a big table and there'd be like, you know, big portions of food that you'd pass around with to each other. Um, what was that place uh, in Boston for years? Gergen Park. Gergen Park. Yeah, that was a. It was worked that way. It was a. It was a. It those, doesn't exist anymore. But it, people would go there to be insulted, because the, the 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 all the gals who worked there had this very salty demeanor, and they would you know they would love you. They would you know taunt you and mock you and say you you got to eat more than that. <laughs> but uh, this but this idea of having like. A, now, uh, like I remember when I was in college, it was just like, this is the meal of the day, right? You know, you go to like the cafeteria and it's like, I don't know, spaghetti, spaghetti day. Everybody eats spaghetti. 
You know, you don't like spaghetti, you don't eat. It's spaghetti day. Today, you know, you go to like a typical college campus, it's just like unbelievable. And you walk into these things, like you don't even like to like eat anything that anybody else eats. You know, there's the, the pizza, you know, bar, and then the sandwich bar, and then the salad bar, and then you know, it's just kind of nuts. And it's like, no wonder everybody's overweight. You know? <laughs> but it's just a whole different world because it's all about the individual now. We, we, we put so much stress on individuals and their choices. And we've lost, I think, a sense of how, um, you know, sharing a meal brings us together. Anyway, any other last thoughts before we wrap up? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could reflect on the nature of the Lord's Supper. We pray that you'll help us today as we uh, receive it to do so in a, in a manner that uh, reflects the things we've heard about. In Christ's name, amen.